Well, good morning. Glad to be able to be with you this morning. My name is Matthew Holbrook. I am one of the elders here at Grace, and I'm excited to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. Look, I don't really have uh, an introduction this morning. I'm sure that Pastor Mike feels this way most Sunday mornings as well, after being immersed in a passage. So all that I can say as far as an introduction this morning is... Buckle up and hold on. Here we go. We're going to dive right in. We're starting in verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're just going to get right to it. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 starts off with, as you come to Him, as you come to Him. And this builds off of the previous two verses. So starting in verse 2, Peter says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to Him. So it's in that context he talks about as you come to Him. There is a coming to Jesus, and it is for those who are longing for Him that come to Him, those who have tasted the goodness of the Lord and now long for Him in the way that a baby longs for milk. They now come to Him. It's the call of the ministry of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 Verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. John chapter 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's the normal word to come that's used throughout the book of Hebrews for coming near to God and remaining there and worshiping him. In Hebrews chapter 7, Just for example, it says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, those who come near to God through Him. And so this coming has the idea of coming to to Christ, those who come to Him, but coming and staying. So let me illustrate. uh, I could say that when I was in college, our friend Robert came from Australia, and he came to America But he stayed with us for like a week, and then he went back to Australia. That's not the type of coming that's talked about here as we come to him. That would be more like saying that my wife, Alice, came to America when she was 10 years old, and she has stayed in America since then. So that's what this this type of coming is, coming coming to a place or coming to a person and staying, remaining, abiding. And that's how we come to Jesus. We come to stay in his presence to remain in intimate personal communion. Coming to Christ is what you do when you long for His Word like a baby longs for milk and longing for it, come to it, feed on it, and find Christ in it. And so that's how Peter starts this section. He says, as you come to Him. And then he says, as you come to Him, and he he describes Him. He says, a living stone. And this kind of opens the door into our outline for this morning. It's a pretty complicated outline. There are two points. One, Jesus is a living stone. And two, Christians are living stones. So see if you can remember that. Jesus is a living stone. Christians are a living stone. Or another way to think about it is this passage is about who we come to and who comes. Who we come to and who comes. And so we start with Jesus is a living stone. 
The word stone here is, is the word that would uh, be describing a stone that would be used in a building, specifically in a building. It's sometimes used to describe a stone that's carved out or a precious stone, but it's a stone that is chiseled and hammered and sawn in order that it might fit perfectly into a building. So here Jesus is described as a stone that would be used for a building, a stone that would be perfectly shaped and perfectly designed, perfectly chiseled to accomplish its purpose. And then Peter says it's a living stone. And for those of us who grew up in the church or you hear this, that you might just kind of gloss over that, but what is a living stone? We know stones are, are not living. Stones are as dead as anything could be, but he says a living stone. He introduces Jesus here as in a contradiction. Stones are dead, but he calls Jesus a living stone. So a living stone is something that should be dead but is alive. And he describes Jesus as someone who should be dead, but he's alive. He was dead, but he has risen from the grave, and he is now alive. He is the living stone or a living stone. He's the Christ, the Messiah, and he lives because he rose from the dead. He's alive. But not only that, he gives life. He gives the life that he has in himself to all who believe. The Apostle John says in John chapter 1 that Jesus is life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So not only is he alive, but he is life. He is a living stone. Now, Peter knew what and who Jesus is. Peter knew what and who Jesus is. He knew that Jesus rose from the dead. He knew that Jesus was God in the flesh, that Jesus was life. Peter knew this. In John chapter 1, the apostle John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, what, have seen his glory. The we would be the disciples. Peter was one of the disciples. He had seen the glory of Jesus. He was there at the transfiguration. He was there. He saw Jesus risen from the dead. Peter knew that Jesus was alive. It's the testimony of the disciples. They were convinced that they had seen the risen Jesus. And because of that, they were all tortured for this belief, and all but John were martyred in gruesome ways because of what they knew to be true, and they wouldn't go back on it. They were utterly convinced of this. In fact, history is actually really clear about this. Even secular atheist scholars have to admit that the disciples claimed that they saw the risen Jesus and that they must have believed it. Now, the atheist, secular scholars may not believe that what they saw was true, but they believe that the disciples believed it. Just one example of many. Um, we have non-Christian New Testament scholar Paula Fredrickson writes this. She says, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence that we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they, that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw, but I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. Christianity Today writes about this quote and says, she's admitting, in other words, that the best available historical evidence confirms that the followers of Jesus, like Mary Magdalene, his brother James, Peter, and his other disciples, even an enemy, Paul, were absolutely convinced that the crucified man Jesus appeared to them alive, raised from the dead. 
The fact that they believed that and went to their deaths for that belief, you can, you can demonstrate that historically outside of the Bible. And Peter was one of those disciples. On a, on a basic level, just note his transformed life. He was a fisherman until Jesus called him to follow him. He was a fisherman. And then he follows Jesus, witnesses Jesus' death and resurrection. And then he writes this. Just listen as I read from 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Isn't that good? That's like good stuff written by a fisherman. It's like a boy in an English class, and he goes every day, and he falls asleep in class day after day and month after month, and then he sees the pretty girl across the room, and he falls in love, and boom, he's a poet. He's writing poetry. And this is like, this is what happened with Peter. He's, he's a fisherman, and then he sees the risen Lord. He believes in Him. He loves Him. He saw Him as life. He sees Him risen from the dead, and boom, Peter is writing stuff like we see in 1 Peter chapter 1. And then Peter comes to chapter 2, and he describes this Jesus as a living stone. He's saying He he was dead, but he is alive. He should be dead, but he is alive. And it is just coming out of Peter in this testimony as to who Jesus is. Now, still under this heading of Jesus being a living stone, we see Peter develop a comparison of perspectives on this living stone. We see the rejected stone and the chosen stone. The rejected stone and the chosen stone. Peter says, as you come to him, in verse 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen. Let's look at rejected, rejected by men. The leaders of Israel saw themselves as participating in, in the building of God's glorious spiritual temple. And as the cornerstone of this temple, Jesus comes. And they examine him, they take a, a hard look at Jesus, and they make their measurements, evaluate, test. They, they're assessing His suitability, His acceptability to be the Messiah, to be the cornerstone of the spiritual temple of God. And after looking very carefully, they concluded that Jesus was not an appropriate cornerstone. And so they rejected Him. The word rejected here means to disapprove of or to reject after having examined or after having been tested. I mean, how could Jesus be God's cornerstone? He didn't fit their expectations. He didn't fit their vision. He didn't fit their perceived needs. He didn't fit their desires. He didn't fit their plans. He didn't fit their religion. 
He didn't fit their view of God. He just didn't fit. And so he was rejected. And then on the other hand, Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but here's the comparison, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Chosen and precious. It's repeated again in verse 6. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. This is the word um, lithos. It's the common word for stone. And Jesus was the perfect chosen stone. It says uh, here in, uh, again in verse 6, he says, um, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So we have this comparison. The leaders rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. And here we have have, um, God choosing and seeing Jesus as precious and saying that He is the cornerstone. So I'm sure you're familiar with this idea of a cornerstone, but when the builders would build a house, they would pay really close attention to the stones. And because the stones would have to fit perfectly, they would have to choose exactly the right stones to place. And the most important stone was what? The cornerstone. The cornerstone set all of the lines for the building. The cornerstone had to be perfect. It was, it was the perfection of the cornerstone that maintained the perfect symmetry in the rest of the building. The cornerstone was like a plumb line in, in every direction. It set the direction going both ways for the sides, but also upward. And if the angles were off, the building would be off. Walls would not be straight if the cornerstone angles were off. If the vertical angle wasn't, wasn't exactly perfect, then the walls would begin to veer inward or outward as it was being built up, and then the building would ultimately collapse. Every angle had to be perfect, and it was set by the cornerstone. Every other stone was lined up to, measured by the cornerstone. And it's against this cornerstone that every other stone finds its place to fit perfectly. And Jesus was, Jesus is the perfect cornerstone. He was chosen. He was elect. This word chosen means elect, chosen. He was precious. Precious means costly. It means highly prized. It means valuable. Jesus was this chosen and and precious cornerstone. MacArthur puts it this way, God examined him too, and God took out the measurements of his own perfection, and God measured Jesus Christ, and God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Every angle in Jesus is perfect. He's the cornerstone. He died, and in his perfection he rose from the dead, proving his suitability to be the cornerstone. And in the infinite wisdom of man, he was rejected. No wonder Paul wrote that even the foolishness of God is wiser than that of men. Sinful nature blinds, and sinful men rejected the perfect cornerstone. One writer noted the following story regarding this passage. It says, two men walked into the Louvre Museum in Paris. One of the curators there, a man of great appreciation for art, stood as these two men stared at one of the great masterpieces of art. And one turned to the other and said, I don't think much of that painting. To which the curator replied, Dear sir, if I may interrupt, the painting is not on trial. You are. 
The world has already assessed the quality of that painting. You only demonstrate the frailty of your measuring capability. You see, Jesus isn't on trial. He's already the perfect cornerstone. Anyone who measures Jesus to see if he's good enough, that's who's on trial. And then the trial is to determine if your measurements are accurate. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You killed him. And then later in verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Again, he is convinced about what he has seen. And then he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. You killed him, God made his assessment, and he exalted him. You rejected him, God exalted him. You measured wrong. And in Acts 4.11, Peter says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Your rejection did nothing to minimize him. Your rejection did nothing to reduce him. Your rejection did nothing to impact him. Your rejection just speaks volumes about you. And it's this cornerstone, this is the rock on which we stand as believers. Peter quotes from Isaiah here in in verse 6, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And what? Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him, in this cornerstone, whoever puts their life in him will not be put to shame. This means will not be disappointed, will not be disillusioned. This is not finding out someday that the one in whom we put our hope has failed. It's not going to happen. He is not going to fail. The word shame or disappointment has the idea of being deceived in a con game. It's not a con. Putting your hope or trust in someone and having that hope disappointed would be the con. This is not a con. We will never be disappointed. We will never be ashamed for trusting Him. He is the perfect cornerstone. We can line up our lives with Him. We can follow Him, trust Him, live for Him, make Him our everything, depend on Him, and we will not be disappointed. We will not be put to shame. There is no con when it comes to Jesus. So we can go all in in following Him. Don't hedge your bet. Love Him with everything you have. Follow Him. What does that look like? What does that mean? John, in John 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love Me. If God were your Father, if God is your Father, what? You would love Jesus. If God is your Father, you would love Jesus. The definition of a Christian is not praying a prayer, not asking Jesus into your heart, not accepting Jesus as your Savior, not going to church, not getting emotional when singing worship songs, not memorizing verses, not just doing good works, not about playing the game well and looking good to other Christians, and it's certainly not about just calling yourself a Christian. If God were your Father, you would love me, Jesus says. It's all about Jesus the real Jesus, the Jesus revealed in Scripture, not the Jesus of your making, not the Jesus of your imagination. It's loving the real Jesus. And what does that look like? In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If God is your Father, you would love me. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21 of John 14, Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Being a Christian is all about loving Jesus and obeying him. 
And so when Peter quotes from Isaiah and says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him, whoever puts their whole life in Him, who says, My life revolves around Jesus. I am building my life on Jesus. I am obeying Jesus. I am following Jesus. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. In other words, Peter's saying, It's not a gamble. Go all in. Love Him, obey Him, go all in in following Jesus. Don't hold back. And in verses 7 and 8, we come back to this idea of the stone being rejected. Verse 7, we see the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Here, Peter changes from the word lithos, which means a small stone, to the word Petra, a massive rock, and it's against this rock that men who disbelieve will be ultimately crushed. Jesus is that crushing stone. Listen to Luke chapter 20, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone, that rock, will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him, or literally it means it will grind him to powder. You see, Jesus is either the living stone that you come to, that you follow, that you depend on, that you align your life to, that you love, that you obey, or Jesus is the rock against which which your disbelief and your rejection will lead you to stumble and you'll ultimately be crushed. You will either be never disappointed and never ashamed in following Him, or your shame and your rejection of Him will lead to your eternal doom. Jesus is the living stone. That's point number one. Number two, Christians are living stones. In verse 5 of 1 Peter 2, Peter says, you yourselves like living stones. So he calls Jesus a living stone, and then he says, and you're a living stone. There's a connection there between who Jesus is and who we are. Like Jesus, we're little Christs. We're also living stones. We're united with Jesus in this way. We're connected to Him in the same building. We're part of the same structure. When you come to Christ, you become like Christ. More and more, we're made to be like Christ. And we live like Christ is living. And how does Christ live? How does Christ live? Well, we can describe that in a lot of ways, but one of the ways Christ lives is for forever. So this is even within this, there's this association, this union with Christ is even drawing on this connection to our eternal salvation. We have our life now and forever in Him. We are connected to Him. We are living as He is living. He is our life. He gives us life. We have eternal life in Him. He's the cornerstone and we're the stones who are also being built up into this spiritual house. We're part of the house connected to His life. We're united with Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of what? The divine nature. We are partakers of the divine nature. We are, as Jesus is is a living stone, we are living stones. He's the cornerstone. We are the living stones built around Him. And remember, this word for stone is a stone used for building, but it's a stone that is chiseled and hammered and sawn in order that it might fit perfectly into the building. Jesus, as the perfect and holy God, 
was already the perfect cornerstone. But we are sinful, contaminated, rebellious people, and we need some chiseling, some hammering, and some sawing to fit exactly right. And Peter uses the word stone here along with this idea of a spiritual house, and he's drawing on Old Testament imagery and Old Testament history. And specifically, he's talking about the building of the temple. So when I teach in high school or in Anchored, there's a certain point that I will often say, okay, if you've been sleeping, now's the time to wake up. So I will just tell you, if you're sleeping, now's the time to wake up. And I promise it's worth it because we're going to talk about the Old Testament temple and the tabernacle, and already some of your eyes are glazing over and you're like, yeah, that sounds like a lot of detail and specifications and you're going to get, I promise it's worth it. Hang in there and follow along what this picture is. And this is, this is the good stuff. So before there was a temple, there was a tabernacle, and the tabernacle was like a traveling tent, and it was the place of meeting God while the Israelites were wandering for 40 years. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 42, God says, it, this, this tabernacle, shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tents of, tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory." And in verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. All right, so the tabernacle. God is saying, this is where I dwell with my people. This is where I will come to meet with my people. That's the tabernacle. And then we come to 1 Kings chapter 6. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 6. I, I want you to follow along in this. 1 Kings chapter 6. So now Solomon is going to build a temple. So now no longer do we just have this traveling tent, but now we are, we are in Israel and Solomon is going to build a temple. It says in 1 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 1, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was, and it goes on for the next several verses describing in all this detail, the house of the Lord that Solomon was building. He's describing the construction of the temple. So we go from this tabernacle that's the traveling tent, now we get Solomon is building a temple, and this temple is where God would meet his people through the high priest. Are you with me so far? We have the tabernacle, and then Solomon builds the temple. And then we come, just hold this in mind, we're going to come back to 1 Kings 6, I promise. But um, if you jump ahead and, and you listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, we have how things have evolved with the temple. Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Here in the new covenant, we are the temple of God. God now meets his people, not in the tabernacle, not in the temple, but in us, in those who belong to him, in Christians, in little Christs. We are the temple of God. And then you take this into eternity going forward. The idea of being God's temple goes even further. God will dwell with his people again, like in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
You see, when we look here back at 1 Kings chapter 6, and we see the building of the temple, it's a picture of God preparing us as a temple, as the temple where we will ultimately be directly with Him, God directly dwelling with us without the presence of sin or death because we are the temple. So when, when we see that, this, this, this language and this imagery in the Bible that says that we are the temple, we, we have to put it in the context of what we see in 1 Kings chapter 6. So now, back in that chapter, 1 Kings 6, look at verse 7. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Where were the stones prepared? In the quarry. The work on the stone took place in the quarry before being finally brought to the temple. I heard Johnny Erickson Tata make this observation. If you don't know who Johnny is, she's a quadriplegic for more than 50 years since she was 17 years old. She's battled cancer and more pain and health problems than pretty much anyone. And this has gone on for decade after decade. And she observes, quote, the earth is God's quarry. It's on earth that we're being prepared for eternity with God, the new heaven and earth, end quote. See, the earth is God's quarry. It's where he mines his stones, living stones. In fact, the church is ultimately the jewels mined from these stones that make up heaven's crown. The church is what adorns heaven for God, jewels reflecting Jesus, sparkling and radiant crowning heaven. Zechariah 9.16 says, And on that day the Lord their God will save them as a flock of His people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine in His land. We are being mined to be jewels in heaven. Jewels that have been mined from stones and the church will adorn the heavens for God. And the church is the temple of God, where God meets His people. Earth and heaven meet, and God dwells with His people for eternity. This is why Christianity is all about getting God, not about getting heaven, not about getting everything else that you want, not about getting community. It's about getting God. Peter started this section saying in, in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Not that you've heard that the Lord is good, or read about it, or memorized it, or talked about it, but if you have tasted, if you have experienced, if you know in your soul that God is good, and then heaven is going to be good because we are the temple of God, mined from the stones on the quarry where God meets His people. He meets us in us. We get Him, we get God, and that is good news. Isaiah 51.11 says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I don't know about you, but I'm all about gladness and joy. It's not a coincidence that 
Peter says, that we're to lean into and that we're to set our hope on the grace that is to come. Yes, the grace in the past is amazing and wonderful, but lean into the grace that is to come at the revelation of Jesus with that joy that we ultimately have, not because we get stuff, but because we get Jesus. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, trials, suffering, hardship, disappointment, these are God's precision tools, scraping away, chipping away, clearing dust and dirt that dull our souls. God is a craftsman. He knows how much cutting is needed and how hard to cut to reveal the jewels that are in us. The earth is God's quarry. He's shaping us in the quarry and preparing us for heaven. He's not the author of sin and pain, but we are stones buried in the quarry of the earth, and He will allow the circumstances of life to act as chisels, to break us free, to shape us, to make us shine for Him. And one day, we see in Isaiah 60, there's the call. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Johnny says in this regard, coming out of her own pain and difficulty, she says, hurting and hammering persist until we reflect the most beautiful sight, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The sound and fury will soon be gone, and it will be replaced with the beauty of eternity where we get God fully, and we will shine like the jewels that he's designed us to be. We are no ordinary pebbles if we belong to Christ. We are no ordinary stones with no purpose, but we are living stones in God's temple. End quote. Peter writes, You yourselves, like Jesus, you're like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house. So we're these living stones, mined from the quarry, and the, all that happens in our lives is shaping us, and, and God is using those precision tools to make us fit exactly right, and we are a part of being built up as a spiritual house. Hebrews 3, 6 says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Ephesians 2, 19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are being built into him. You're being built together into a dwelling place for God. The earth is God's quarry, and it's where the hammering takes place to prepare us to be the dwelling place of God. And that's why we can say, and we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. What's the good? We know that the chiseling and the hammering of being built into the dwelling place for God are our ultimate good and our ultimate joy. And note that we're not just isolated stones. We're being built together. We're being put together around the cornerstone. God uses all of us in each other's lives. Imagine that you're a stone in the middle of a well-built wall. How secure are you? There's stones above you and below you and to the sides of you and 
and there's a strong structure, and when the wind or pressure comes against that wall, you're going to be secure and you're, you're going to be solid. But, but maybe there's a partially built wall that's like maybe an extension or a new, a new building project to the, the dwelling place of God. Or maybe it's a, it's a partially built wall that's, that's, uh, that was started and, and, uh, and, and, and building is stalled for whatever reason. And, and you're a rock and you're on top of one other rock, and you're part of the wall, you're part of the structure, how secure are you? If the wind or pressure comes, would you be knocked off? The good news is that if you're one of His stones, God will protect you even if you are in a precarious place. But ultimately, one of the primary ways that He's going to protect you is put other stones around you. And how does He do that? Maybe... He uses a sermon like this to encourage you to do whatever it takes to get more stones around you so that you can be secure in that wall. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This idea of a holy priesthood is we're not simply the passive building where God dwells. We're not just just the walls in the roof of this building where God dwells. We are participants. We are active participants in the worship of God in this building. And not just participants, but priests. All of you, all Christians, anybody who has given their life to Christ and follows Jesus, all Christians, pastors, elders, Awana leaders, ushers, singers, artists, plumbers, lawyers, engineers, chair sitters, All Christians are the priests of this new spiritual house. Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. All Christians are part of this priesthood. And our joyous priest is to draw near to God with spiritual sacrifices. The priests brought sacrifices into the tabernacle in the Old Testament, but now the tabernacle is replaced by the church, the altar is replaced by Jesus in His shed blood, and the priests are replaced by those who are following Jesus. John Piper says this, This means that you all have access to God through Jesus Christ. You do not take your sacrifices to the priest and watch while he takes it to the altar or to the tent of meeting with God. You are all called by God to approach the altar and the throne and to make your own personal sacrifice in personal life and in corporate worship. And therefore, you must be holy. You must set apart for God, be set apart for God, cleansed by the blood of Christ through faith and dedicated to the relentless and ruthless opposition to sin in your life. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You are a priest to God. You are a part of a worship team called the Holy Priesthood. Without this God-wrought holiness, we do not offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Note that all of this comes through Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 5, we're called to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This passage started with coming to Jesus, and then this, this, this book ended with through Jesus. If you haven't got it yet, the whole Christian life is all about Jesus. He's not a part of your life. He is your life if you are a Christian. Following Jesus is going all in and saying, it's not a con game. I can put everything in and I will not be disappointed. I will not be ashamed. 
It's all about living a life for Jesus. It's why Paul says in Romans 15, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're to bring spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God as the holy priesthood. We're to bring those to God. Everything you do with your body, our bodies are living sacrifices. Everything you do with your body is to be done as an act of worship to God. Whether you eat or drink or cook or care for children or play a guitar or drive or hike or mow a lawn or paint a house or kiss or type an email or read a book or forgive or sing or overlook being wronged or serve someone in need, whatever it is that you do with your body, do it in such a way as to make Jesus look good. Do it through Jesus. Do it depending on Jesus. Do it trusting Jesus. Do it in obedience to Jesus. Do it out of love for Jesus. Do it with thankfulness to Jesus. Do it to point to Jesus. Do it to see Jesus. Do it to make much of Jesus. These are your spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. But you, Peter writes, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's this all about? What's the purpose of being a living stone? What's the purpose of being built together as a temple? What's the purpose of being mined out of the quarry? What's the purpose of everything that Peter is talking about? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what life is about for the Christian. Remember in 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter writes and he says that he has granted to us precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. We are partakers of the divine nature. We represent the divine in how we live because we are living stones connected to the cornerstone. We're no ordinary stones with no purpose. We share in a divine nature. He is no ordinary stone. He is the cornerstone. We are no ordinary stones. We are stones mined from the quarry, hammered and chiseled by God to shape us to be the perfect stones to fit and align with the cornerstone. He is no ordinary stone. He is chosen and precious. We are no ordinary stones. We find our lives, our loves, our very being in the cornerstone. He is no ordinary stone. He was dead and is now alive. He is a living stone. And we are no ordinary stones. We were once dead and He has made us alive. We are living stones. So count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, chiseled from the quarry, lacking in nothing. Lord, we come to you, and we are so thankful for 
the truth of our connection when we put our faith in Jesus, that we are connected to the cornerstone, the one that sets every angle perfectly and sets the direction and everything in our lives perfectly when it's aligned with you. God, may we be people who live fully and completely for Jesus, knowing that we will not be disappointed, we will not be put to shame. God, that you are not a con game, but that we can go all in with you in our lives. And so, God, would you use this time this morning to stir in us a little more that we would live more fully for Jesus to make him known. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.